Enjoy the show. <laughs> enjoy I really have to start that intro. You to enjoy it. Um, anyway, hello everybody, all three of our possible viewers. <laughs> if they're there, we're doing these incredibly spontaneously, so I appreciate um, it's not exactly what... Um, oh, I've, I just realized I forgot to put my lights on. I'll do that in a second. Um, I get jealous so of the man going... in that intro, by the way. I wonder if I'll have a beard as glorious as that ever again. My wife let me it grow was... it out just for uh, the pandemic. Really? And now it's yeah. all gone. Well, she tolerated it for the pandemic. I, I told her that uh, there was a razor shortage. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, um, for those who don't know, I'm Isabella Kaminska. Um, I'm incredibly tired of Isabella Kaminska, but I am Isabella Kaminska. And uh, this is the Blind Spot podcast with me and my amazing cohort. Cohort, co-host. Steve, Steve Smelly. John Seth. John Seth. pausing a bit for me. There we go. Am I? Hello. I, I'm right on, like for you, I'm, I'm looking at this. So it looks like I'm right on time, but. Martin Armstrong's here. Oh, oh, we get a guest. Yes. How are you doing? Hey, Hello. You popped we in. So I knew we, 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 were, we, were just bl you know, we were just talking, but thanks for popping in. Um, I did say we were going to have a special guest, maybe. Um, I, didn't, I didn't advertise it too much, just in case I left it to last minute. But thanks for joining us. How oh, are you? It's always a pleasure. Where, well, where, where are you? Where are you on. tuning in? Where are you tuning in from? Uh, Florida. Oh. Ah, lovely. <laughs> you want to come over? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Maybe the where are you in like uh, Miami or you like North Florida area? No, I'm uh, by St. Pete. Oh, you're on the opposite side of the state. Yeah, yeah. I'm on. Uh, the, I'm is, on the other. I'm is... on Deerfield. I'm John Seth. By the way, this is my co-host. But for those who don't know who Martin is, I um I invited him as I've been meaning to talk to him properly for ages. But um, Martin is a fascinating person and um. I, he wrote some nice things about me the other week, so I, I thought I would um, <laughs> extend the invite um, because I, I've, I've been tracking your stuff for a very long time. I have obviously, actually, I first came across you during 2008, um, which was when you were, I believe, incarcerated, right? That was roughly around then? Yes, yes. Um, for those who don't know, 2011, and you were putting out these notes, um, handwritten notes, and with with drawings, and I think Andrew Ross Sorkin had done an interview with you at some point, um, which is how I came to how I came by you. Um, I can't remember when it was actually, 
But for those who don't know Martin, um, and I don't, because we have a kind of strange audience, Martin, we have like a core finance audience, but also quite a crypto audience. But Martin has been following finance, well, forever. And I'm sure he, he will do a better job of introducing himself than me. Um, but he has this fascinating um, background in programming um, a sort of predictive algorithm engine in terms of stock investing. And he used well, he scraped together all this data from from coins, which is why it's very relevant to the coin uh, viewers. Um, ancient history—you you were obsessed with ancient coins, right? Well, when I was actually just a teenager, that's when they were taking silver out of the coins, and I had bought my first ancient coin, I think, for ten dollars when I was like at thirteen. Nice. And I just saw that it was exactly the same thing. I mean, the Romans debased their currency. They made it uh, copper. They silver plated it to make it still look the same. Uh, and, of course, we took silver out of the coins in 1964. We did the same thing. We put nickel on them to make it look like it was kind of white metal. Uh, and it just seemed like this is the same thing over and over again. Um so, uh, but, but then, Martin, it's it's been different, hasn't it? Not really. It, it, it people I have found, no matter what century you talk about, they respond to similar events always the same way. Uh, it's, it's so it, it's maybe a little bit more uh, sophisticated today. Uh, but, I mean, for example, the first real central bank was uh, on the island at Delos. And there's a monument there about all the countries that defaulted. <laughs> so, I mean, it's nothing really has changed uh, over millennia, really. Um, well, one of the things that's changed is we now have a global uh, a sort of a global currency, right? Like the, the dollar has taken that over. I don't think that we've ever had anything on that level. No, actually, we did. Okay, what what is it? The first world currency, um, I would say, was probably Athens, the Athenian owls that they produced. I mean, they were used everywhere. Uh, and when Athens fell to Alexander the Great, uh, his coins became really like the dollar of the ancient world. Um, and then, you know, basically they fell and you, you have the Roman Empire. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting because if you go to the Celtic regions, they were imitating Roman coins. You go to India uh, and they were issuing, you know, gold coins with imitating the uh, Roman emperors. Uh, so, I mean, there's always been a... Uh, I would say a, a financial capital of the world, uh, no matter what century we look at. Uh, right now, it happens to be the dollar, and that's because of World War One and World War Two. I mean, Britain was the um, effectively the world currency at that time. They took it from the Dutch. The Dutch took it from the Spanish. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, I mean, Spain defaulted on their debt seven times and, and went from the richest country in the world to a third world, you know, country, basically. Um, so, whereas Donald Trump so, would say a shithole country. Yeah, yeah probably. 
So just like, again, just to give people some context. So um, you've, you're kind of like a self-taught programmer who used all this data you amassed from tracking history, historical kind of uh, trends in terms of valuation of money, etc. And you created Socrates, which was your your kind of predictive algorithm for how, that 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 you used to advise your clients for many years, right? So it goes back. When did when was when did you when did you create Socrates? When did it become a thing? How far oh, back, back does in it go? The 70s. But actually, it wasn't self taught in programming. Uh, oh, okay. I, I actually went uh, went to engineering school, but back then we did uh, software and hardware. Um, and but you you programmed Socrates yourself, yes. Um, mainly because I was always interested in trading, and um, uh, you know, I had gone through the whole design thing, and back then, RCA was the biggest, uh, actually, computer company. And when integrated circuits came out, I mean, I have one of their old uh, computers, it's a phonograph. Yeah, they 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 were actually ahead of everybody, and uh, they had all the government contracts out of you know World War II with their walkie-talkies and stuff like that. Um, and uh, you know, I I was there to watch how a corporate you know decision really goes quite bad. They um, they had these computers which were basically the size of a room at that time, and they were quite expensive. They were five to seven million dollars in the 1960s. That was a lot of money. And uh, so they thought it would be like the radio. And if you go look online in 1930s, radios were wooden cabinets and, you know, and they were quite expensive. Then they went down to like a crystal set that a kid could buy in a five a dime store. So they thought the same thing would happen to computers. And they sold out to, to Univac and IBM. And IBM was a, a typewriter company. Uh, and so they kept the, the design um, and the, the major strategic uh, contracts from the government. So I was not married. I was offered Thule, Greenland, Guam, or Vietnam. <laughs> You know, the, the married guys were getting London, you know, Paris, stuff like that. So I quit. Uh, and I went <laughs> back to trading. And and then I realized, gee, I could write a, com you know, a computer program to do this. And so that's how I started, you know, basically you know, doing that. And uh, <clears throat> we were, you know, the reason we ended up being the biggest uh, in the world was very interesting. You know, we were uh, going to open an office in Geneva back in 1985. This was at Princeton Economics, right? Yes. And I don't want to make anyone feel old, but that was the year I was born. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so anyhow, uh, you know, I had met with one of our clients for lunch. It was one of the, the you know, the heads of one of the main uh, Swiss banks. And I had a list of like foreign names, like European advisors, stuff like that, because I knew there was a lot of anti-Americanism in Europe. And so I ran, you know, tried to run a few of these names by him. I said, gee, what would you suggest? 
And he asked me, he said, well, name one European analyst. And I couldn't at the time. I was embarrassed. I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm sure there has to be, but I just don't know of any. And he laughed. And he said, uh, you don't realize why everybody uses you. And I said, no, I don't. Why? And he said, because if he's British, it's always God save the queen, uh, French, you know, whatever. And because after World War II, the politicians used currency as a validity for their, um, see, I did a good job. The Deutsche Mark's up against the dollar by 10%. Uh, so <clears throat> consequently, there were no analysts that could freely speak. You could, if you said, gee, the Deutsche Mark's going to go down, you were suddenly a traitor. You were against the political establishment. So he said, everybody uses you because you don't care if the dollar goes up or down. I said, no, it's just a trade. And so we became the biggest foreign exchange advisors everywhere. I mean, Europe, Asia. Um, and was that was the reason, because the Europeans had made it a political, uh, tied it to politics. Whereas in the United States, I mean, no president could run and say, vote for me. The dollar's up against the Mexican peso by 10%. Everybody would have laughed and said, what's that got to do with anything, you know? Um, but since you're talking about World War II and everybody was starting from the ground up, it was a political issue over there. So, I mean, that's how we ended up expanding around the world. It was really foreign exchange. Huh. And... And, and so you so you were based in Geneva and um, in, when at your peak sort of because you were advising everyone like Margaret Thatcher and people like that at some point you you what was your assets under management so you 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 were how big at your biggest oh, oh I think um, when I testified before the House Ways and Means Committee in Congress, I think it was 1996, we had $3 trillion at that time. Um, so... You were I mean, advising was, $3 trillion worth of, 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 of... But that wasn't... So that, that was in terms of who, how much value you were advising. Yes. So then what... So, so this was in the 90s, and, um, and Socrates was obviously the algorithm that you were using to help with these predictions. And it was incredibly um, accurate, right? So you predicted the the big Russia collapse. That was like the main the main sort of win that you had. And and you, tell us a little bit more about how that came well, to be. It was actually in the 1980s we had uh, the a client in Lebanon, the Universal Bank in Lebanon. And they had found a, a ledger where somebody had written down the Lebanese pound every day back to like 1850 or something. And they called and they said, look, we found this data. Could you make a model on it? I said, sure. Okay, fine. And they sent it over, put it in the computer. And I thought something was wrong. It came out and it said, look, your country's going to fall apart in eight days. And um, I said, there's got to be something wrong with the data that you sent. And he very calmly said to me, well, what currency would you recommend? And which I thought was a very strange response. I said, well, it says the Swiss franc. It's okay, fine. Thank you very much. Eight days later, the civil war began. Uh, the same thing happened. We had a client in- Wait, wait a sec, wait a sec, Martin. L L Libya, uh, when was Lebanon. that? 
or Lebanon. Lebanon. When was that? Yeah. Oh, that was in the mid eighties. Uh, then there was the, um, we had a client I mean, in Saudi Arabia uh-huh. who called me on the phone and said, uh, Iran's going to start attacking shipping in the Gulf tomorrow. What do you think uh, gold's going to do? I said, you tell me a war is going to start tomorrow? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think gold's going to do? So I, be- I began to understand that if, for example, the bankers obviously saw something and knew a civil war was coming. Uh, it's not like I'm telling them something they didn't know. I'm just giving them the timing. That's it. Uh, and so <clears throat> began to see that if capital understands a war is going to come, it starts to move. Martin, so real, real quick though, like, so, so you're, you're plugging data into this algorithm and it says that a country is going to fall apart in eight days. Do you, is, are you, are, are they using your data to uh, commit action and thus like somehow you're a part of the movement or are they, were you just right? That no, that was I think you're just right. Later. I mean, the capital already was moving, and that's what the computer picks up. Um, so capital's moving. Everyone, some some people know something, and uh, somehow this this giant amount of capital indicates that something's going to happen, and they got about eight days of liquidity yeah, um, and whatever in the country. The, the Russian forecast that she's talking about, I we had a conference there in June of '98. Uh, so this is the LTCM, the, the same LTCM yeah. failure time. Okay. Uh, and I, say that Russia 80s I didn't or 90s realize that someone from the London Financial Times it was in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I put out the forecast. I said, look, this shows that Russia is going to collapse, and I give it about 30 days. And um, the computer, we, we were picking up $100 billion going into Russia, but $150 billion coming out. So... Uh, you know, we're tracking capital flows. And so obviously some capital was starting to move. And when I put out that forecast, the, the FT put it, happened to put it on the front page uh, of the second section. And then when it collapsed, then that's when everybody started giving me a, a bunch of, um, oh, you caused it, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. That's when the CIA came in and they said, well, they, they were monitoring us for years. And your, your real, your real mistake, Martin, was you didn't call John Merriweather. <laughs> Probably. Uh, and so that's when the CIA came in and they were said, look, we understand what you're doing we, they wanted me to build this model for them. And I said, look, it took me 17 years to get this far. I, I said, we'll run any study you want. And they said, no, we have to own it. So that started the whole nonsense with them. And, and uh, I mean, I understand from their perspective, they didn't want anybody else looking at the forecast. But, hey, that's my business. You know, you can't shut me down because of that. Uh, but, you know, they did a good job in doing so. <laughs> um, so how, tell, tell, for those who don't know, tell, tell the kind of unfortunate set of circumstances that um, ended up with you sort of in contempt of court and um, in a in a situation for how many, 10 years? Was it 10 years in the uh, end? 11, 11. 11 years. Yeah, they, um, this is what, you know, I, I warned about, you know, that Trump is going to find out what New York's really about. Um, you know, 
Congress had passed this statute that said maximum time for civil contempt is 18 months. And so they, civil contempt, it's not a crime. The judge can just say, I don't believe you and you got to do X, Y, Z. And if you don't do it, they, they put you in contempt of court. They've done that to some journalists. Uh, turn over your, your you know, uh, I think one New York Times journalist, they did that too. They threw her in, in contempt. Um, in my case, uh, what was going on, in all honesty, was that uh, that was the first time the bankers were trying to actually take over Russia. Um, they had asked me to invest $10 billion into their Hermitage Capital Fund, and I've refused. Uh, and I think basically it was the same kind of neocons that we have today, but they were looking at it as, as taking over Russia. And, and so they got Yeltsin to, uh, take $7 billion from the money, from the IMF money. And as soon as mm -hmm. that wire took place, they, Republic National Bank ran to the government and said, oh, you know, Bank of New York just did a $7 billion money laundering. They rushed into that and then they blackmailed Yeltsin. You either step down and put in our guy um, uh, or all this is going to come out. And, and that's actually how Putin got the power. Most people didn't really understand because Putin was never known before. Yeah. Um, they wanted this guy Baroshnovsky put in and he refused. So he turned to Putin, who was not a communist and he wasn't a politician. But Yeltsin was getting uh, attacked by both sides. He had uh, the U.S. neocons on one side using the bankers. And on the other side, the old hardline communists uh, filed a motion to impeach him to try and take back the country. Uh, right. And that's why I turned to Putin. Uh, so it just became a real big mess at that point. And I think that um, it, it was just, it became just one giant cover up. So they kept me in this contempt, uh, no well, trials or anything. Martin, how, how did you, how did you get into contempt? Like what, what did you not hand something over? Did you not make a yeah, comment? They just what, like make what happened? Up whatever they, they said, Oh, you have to turn over stuff that I didn't even have. Uh, and, um, even my lawyer said, you know, I, I stood up in court. I said, can I have a list of what it is I'm supposed to produce? And but there was, so the, but, but there was a backstory in that there was a Japanese element. Like, the, so there was a, the reason that, that you ended up in court was to do with, um, a charge about how you treated your Japanese clients. Is that right? So, yes. What it was, was that the bank actually stole a billion dollars out of the accounts, told uh -huh. the government it was, uh, oh, they had no idea where the money was. Uh, that's why it just got to be, you know, a, a complete insanity. Uh, that's when Gretchen Morganson from the New York Times says, you know, how is this even possible? Um, I mean, nobody, you know, how does a billion dollars vanish from a bank and nobody knows where it is? <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to, it's like a wire or something. There's got to be some, something of that nature. Uh, but it was just an excuse to shut everything down. And, um, and that's pretty much what they did. So shut your operations down, right? They shut us down. They, you know, we even had a, 
uh, a competitor that came in and said, look, we'll rent the Institute. We want to keep it going. No, denied. Um, it was just, it was very clear that that's what was about. And the bankers were complaining that they would try to manipulate these markets all the time like this. And um, I would say, sorry, you know, our computer says it's going to collapse. And so, you know, people tend to judge others by themselves. And so they just thought I had too much influence and they didn't really, I think, believe in a, in a computer model. Um, Martin, how, how, how often is your algorithm wrong? It's never been wrong ever on major trends. Um, people don't understand that the long term is actually easier to do than where's the Dow going to close tomorrow. Right. Right. But I mean like doing, doing a prediction, like your country's going to collapse in eight days. That seems an, like an astronomically inc incredible event to be able to predict. Like, and, and, you know, if you have that info and you believe it, you know, you should be, able to make a trillion dollars off of that info, right? <laughs> so like how often on on those sort of micro events have you have you looked at it and like what's your confidence when the computer tells you that in eight days a country's gonna collapse? Well, is it, it nine days up, away? No. Is it definite? Is it not gonna happen? No, it's, it's, at that point it's definite. I mean it, it's picking up the capital flows. So, so is it is it sort of like when you're looking at this like everything is fine, everything is fine, everything is fine, and then all of a sudden it's like alerts, blah blah blah, something's yeah, gonna happen. Having looked, so you you have like different scores for like confidence levels in certain predictions, right? So you, you it's it's a patchwork of different sort of markets and predictions. Yeah, that... it's uh, in all honesty, it's impossible. Uh, <clears throat> to be wrong when you're doing the whole global picture. You can be wrong if you're doing a single market. Because what happens is, is that there's always some wild card that comes from the outside. You know, it, what this is doing, it's looking at everything. So um, <clears throat> uh, look, we even did a, the computer put out, I, I, I even got called by RT in Russia. You can go online. We've, a year in advance, we said, okay, fine. There's going to be a war. It's going to start in Ukraine. It picked Ukraine for it. Um, we published that a year in advance. Uh, and um, I mean, everybody was, was kind of shocked, but the computer is pretty damn good, really, on the on these sorts of things. Uh, and <clears throat> um, even RT called and said, how could you possibly predict all this was going to happen in Ukraine a year ahead of time? I said, this is basically what it shows. It's it's capital flows, and and it was arranged. There was there's no question about it. Um, <clears throat> John McCain so you're was saying, there. In you're advance. saying you're watching you're watching capital flows that signify that are like precursors to war, where money is going and and from places. Is that is that? Yeah, the, I think the idea, is, as far as I understood, is that ahead of any conflict people have to prepare and so they start accumulating you know certain they start selling this and buying this and then preserving their own capital sending some of it abroad and the computer kind of picks up on what are anomalous flows relative to norm and 
it can see a sort of aberration which is indicative of and, of people and preparing just, for a war. Are you just doing like well, a, a... for example, we're I can tell you right now, we will definitely be in war with China. Okay. China okay. knows this. All right. It's already been selling US government debt. It's dumping why so how do we make do money that? on that, Martin? How do I make money on that? <laughs> <clears throat> if you're when, do you have an idea of when? War. Do you have an idea of when, or is it like like a year off? Oh, probably before years? twenty, the end of twenty twenty four. Okay. Um, I mean, there are people from sources, all right, that are trying to push it even before by the end of this year. Um, but <clears throat> if you're going to go to war against somebody. Why would you then buy their bonds to fund them against you? You you naturally mm-hmm. start selling everything, and that's what China's been doing. Uh, just today, yeah. uh, they've come out and, and said they've turned over uh, documents showing money that was paid to the Biden family. Um, I mean, this is you know it's we're, this is the direction we're going in. Uh, and, and people have to understand that there are these neocons that are not Republican or Democrat. They're both sides. And, and that's just basically it. I mean, they have been there for a long time. You can even Google McNamara. He put out a book uh, apologizing before he died. He was the neocon that got us into Vietnam. You know, 58,000 guys died. And he basically wanted to clear his conscience. He said we were wrong. It's funny um, to apply the neocon uh, label to someone that old, <laughs> like, because to me, neocon is something that comes out of like 1998, 1999. No, they've always been around. They, what you would say a neocon is, and we're not the only ones with them. I mean, China has some, you know, Russia has some. The, I mean, they're just hawkish conservatives of a sort. Yeah, right? like you could call hawkish. them hawkish. Um, uh, you know, they in the United States, they actually began on the Democratic side. Um, they, it was a split kind of in the, they were against the democratic, uh, ideas of Marxism, etc. Uh, so they were Democrats who actually became, and they called them neocons. That's where the term actually came, you know, came from initially. But, um, uh, they just, you know, I mean, even Ron Paul's called out, called them out. I mean, it's just been, you know, endless wars after wars. I mean, it's, you know. You name it, they 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 just always want war. I don't know why, but there's something wrong with them. There's, you know, their parent dropped them and hit them on the head when they were a baby or something. I don't know, but um, uh, it's it's look. I, I've known some of them. I've known you know um, Bill Crystal. Uh, he even wrote the book on to justify going into Iraq. I mean. There's no real discussion with these people. I mean, they are, they think that um, delusion, I, I would say. They, they really thought that, like, if they go in the Middle East, they topple all these dictators, that the people will cheer and give them some sort of ticker tape parade. And it just doesn't work that way. But, you know, they, uh, like they, they will typically demonize a head of state. So they've done that to Putin, all right? Putin is not, uh, by any means, he's the more moderate guy. 
just look at who is behind him always threatening World War II and, and nuclear arms. You remove Putin and you're going to see what, what the neocons there in Russia are really about. Um, oh, so you're saying that within Russia, there are much more like scary sort of figureheads oh, who could take over. Right. Absolutely. So if you create a power vacuum, like that relative to the alternatives, Putin is a moderate force within the Russian echelons. Yeah. I mean, he look, that's why Yeltsin even turned to him, um, because the, the, the communists were trying to impeach him. They take the country back to the USSR. Um, yeah. And uh, so you have to understand that, you know, that most of this is a lot of it's propaganda. I mean, you look at Saddam Hussein, they took him out and then you had all the uh, religious fanatics, you know, ISIS come up. Um, you know, the, there's always a plus and a minus to, no matter what you want to look at. And if you look at the guys in Russia who are threatening nuclear war, it's the second tier. Um, so that what happened like at that pivotal moment when the Iron Curtain fell and the USSR, USSR sort of disbanded and, and then we saw this move of capital markets trying to kind of penetrate Russia, that seems to me to have been like a really underappreciated moment in history that has set the paradigm for the latter sort of half, well, for, for where we are now, really. And people have kind of overlooked what happened during that period but would you would you say that really given what you know what the russians went through when they i mean it's very i mean it's very delicate at the moment like saying anything nice about russia you get like demonized and said no exactly called so you know an appeaser but i think it's fair to say that like when communism collapsed like the they were not ready for capitalism and and the the oligarchs really did plunder um so much of russian wealth right and so this move they you know they've they've embraced putin largely because capitalism failed them in a very shocking way and they didn't have any muscle memory of 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 markets or how to operate you know within a free market system right so it was very easy for them to do that social pact with with um with Putin as a sort of protector of the system. But from a capital flow perspective, um, you know, what I find fascinating is that leading up to the crisis in Ukraine, we saw sanctions obviously being imposed, but the entire kind of consensus on the market was that these sanctions would be very effective. And that hasn't necessarily been the case. And I was just wondering, you know, as someone who watches capital, capital market flows do you think that that is because of leaky sanctions is it because of commodity power relative to economic power what 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 do you think has been the key reason the sanctions haven't necessarily crippled russia the way we we were expecting well largely it's mainly because these neocons have taken over the the biden administration and um you know, for the life of me, I mean, I can't imagine how it, they're either completely stupid or they're, this is deliberate. Um, but you you ended up 
at also uh, going after in uh, China. I mean, the the one China policy was kind of like, uh, okay, fine, yeah, it's one policy. Then you start flying, you know, Pelosi to to uh, Taiwan, etc. And you're, you know, as long as there was a one China policy acknowledged, then Taiwan was safe. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, you go in there. We're going to support this. We're going to do that. You know, now you've made it confrontational. So you've done that to China on one side, and then on the opposite side, you, you've got Russia. Nixon did his best to separate them, and they've done nothing but push them together. Uh, effectively, what um, they've done with these sanctions has been probably the worst thing in economic history. Uh, mm-hmm. Mainly because, I mean, even when China, when Russia went into uh, Crimea. Obama went to SWIFT and wanted and told them you should take them out of the SWIFT system. And SWIFT said, no way, this is not going to become political. Uh, and so they replaced the head of SWIFT in 19, you know, in, in 19. And so this time they go in and they say, okay, fine. Oh, all right, fine. Whatever you want. And, um, so now the SWIFT system, you've, you've basically crippled it. You've divided the world in half. China then has its chip system, which is, you know, going up forward at lightning speed. You now have the BRICS, you know, you know trying to come up with something. Um, the, the dollar, as far as the global reserve currency, is going to, you know, also come to an end. Uh, and this has been so divided because of these sanctions. It's crazy. You've yeah, ruined and, and, and the world economy. Do you think that that is to do with the signal that was sent when when we confiscated assets, or do you think there is something else going on in terms of, you know, the? Um, I mean, until until that sort of moment, and with the Afghan central bank, the dollar was supposed to be the representative of contract law in the world, and like you, you, you were supposed to be able to trust, um, you know, the, not just America as a sort of defender of democracy, but also the legal structure that supported it all. Right? Um, yes. Do I you, mean, do you, yeah. Europe would routinely cancel its currency, Britain too. The dollar has never been canceled. So, I mean, I remember being on flights when they put out the new dollar bill and there were ads on there, oh, the old ones are still valid, you know, don't worry about it, etc. You know, and the dollar has, has been the more than the reserve currency. It's been the cash reserve of people around the world as a hedge against their own governments. Uh, and exactly. so once you take that away uh, and you're talking about these digital currencies, etc., uh, all that's gone. So I what mean, is your they, view on the digital currency situation? What do you think, how does that fit into like what's going on? It, well, honestly, uh, it, it's it's extremely bad from the standpoint of, of privacy, etc. Uh, 
what is really behind it is effectively that once you create everything on a digital platform, uh, then the government gets absolutely every penny of tax that it ever dreamed of. Uh, you can't hire the 16-year-old girl next door to watch the babies. You know, how'd you pay her? <laughs> you know, um, here you give her a $20 bill and that's between you and them. You know, it's once, I mean, even the Bank of England has come out and said that, uh, you know, a mother should be able to prevent the child from using it to buy a chocolate bar. You know, well, if the mother can do that, they can do that as well. Um, so it, it's more of, of, honestly, I've been in meetings for decades with governments and their view is they would not have a problem if we all paid our taxes. That's just the way they are. They're on, they're on the opposite side and we are really the enemy and people don't understand that. And that's what this push for a digital currency really is about. Uh, because once you do that, the only other thing available is barter. Um, you do you do think this, it's um, also to do with maybe the fact that QE has like run its course and at this point there is no exit without a potentially very inflationary environment like I think inflation is clearly you know everyone under, underestimated inflation what how was Socrates on inflation did, did, what was the did they did did Socrates predict it yeah it's it projected that uh, inflation would turn up in January of 2000 and it's going to continue into 2024. Um, uh, it called for a commodity cycle this time. Um, I mean, all these things are on record. I mean, you know, for a long time. I mean, it's, you can see them uh, coming years in advance. That's why I said the long term is easier to forecast than it is where's the job going to close tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of noise uh, well, what in, in markets. You, you say we move from whatever we have now to a system of barter, given that they've essentially ruined the global economy doing what they're doing. What does that look like to you? Uh, it looks just to me that we're look. I would say our, uh, our computer's mm. projecting that we're looking at the, the fall pretty much of Western civilization uh, and we're going to be looking at in eight days. <laughs> uh, now it's after twenty thirty two. Twenty thirty two. Okay, I got. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. You know, it's it, you know. Look, you well, they say that like if you were a Roman living through the Roman, the fall of the Roman Empire, you probably wouldn't have noticed it because you don't notice necessarily when you're living through a paradigm shift. But well, no, I'm actually, sorry, Martin. A lot of people did. Um, they began to leave the cities, and that's where you ended up moving into uh, serfdom, so to speak. Uh, people would sign up for work for a guy that had a castle. He provided the the the, the shelter and the protection um, when government wasn't there anymore. Uh, that, that's pretty much pretty much it. I mean, you can. Look at even Japan, which I, I find is an interesting case study. Uh, the, the emperors would always devalue whatever the last, you know, the currency that was outstanding and say, oh, all right, it's, it's only worth 10% of this new currency I'm producing. And so after a while, the, the Japanese refused to simply even accept Japanese coins. 
money became bags of rice and they used China, China's coins. Um, I mean, the same thing with the German hyperinflation. People were starting, they were using everybody else's currency but Germany's. Um, I mean, that's fairly you know common. You look at Zimbabwe, the same thing. Uh, they were using U.S. dollars. Um, so, Martin, let's let's say we do have a collapse in 2032. Like that's when things just go kaput. What 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 does that look like? Are we are we tr- trading chickens? Most likely, you're looking at like Europe will break up, United States will break up, uh, and you'll find regions that will you know they typically break apart along the same lines that they did before. So Does gold United, go up, silver, Bitcoin? Like, what do you, what do you think? I, you know, I would, um, and by up, I mean, do they become the commodity of choice to trade? Like what is the medium of exchange in that scenario? I, I mean, personally, I would, you know, look at like the old silver coins, um, you know, uh, 1964 and back. Uh, you have to look at it from a standpoint of, um, let me shut this phone off. Here. All right, thanks. Um, but um, I gotta get this. Okay. Okay. Isabel, we're never gonna know how to hedge against this now. We're dead. <laughs> we need to know how we're to hedge against it. <laughs> um. There you go. Shut it off. All right. Um. <laughs> you know, you have these things that you have to look at it from the standpoint. You might know what you have. Does the other person? All right. Um, I mean, there are videos of on YouTube of somebody off being offered a silver bar or, or a chocolate bar, and they take the chocolate. <laughs> no. Um, you know, it it all depends upon whatever medium of exchange the other person has to un- respect that it has some sort of value. Uh, and that's pretty much what will happen. Uh, I would say you're probably looking at um, breaking up as typically, even Rome broke up. Uh, you had the Gallic Empire split off from the Roman side. Um, it's, it's largely that we're, we have these governments. And honestly, they are spending recklessly at this point because they know they're going to, to default. Um, yes, I mean, it looks very much like um, debasement is now factored into the policy and they are perhaps not willing to admit it because obviously they can't admit it. But I think anyone who reads between the lines can see that the only exit out of where we are <coughs> is through strategic debasement. And someone like Liz Trust obviously freaked everyone out because she was a little too explicit about it. But frankly, Trust was at least being a bit honest about what was going on. Whereas I think um, the reality is, is now we're, we're kind of in denial um, or just uh, trying to mask the situation. But um, what's Martin, will I be able to buy you, eggs with this? Do you think? You're not allowed to. <laughs> that's a bullet. You're not allowed to show bullets. <laughs> I didn't show bullets. Um, is it a bullet? Look, it looks I like a golden that, bullet. You know... I mean, you know Klaus Schwab. I don't well, really. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, is, I know who he is. Been very intimate with Klaus Schwab, but not uh, in the way that I've, you think. I've met him once, <laughs> up close. 
Um, <laughs> he's his great reset is probably taken from our 2032. We've been on the opposite sides for a long time. Um, I mean, even the guy that did the movie on me, Marcus Vetter, who did the forecaster, Schwab called him and had him do the the forum on him. Uh, I mean, it's been back and forth for for a long time. We had our. Well, he must know who you are then. Oh yes, he does. (laughs) So do you do you think Schwab is looking at your predictions, going, "This guy's right." And we need to develop a plan and uh, and run with it with these global elites. Yes, what, what he is saying with his great reset is pretty much uh, what our model has said. 2032, we're looking at a, a great reset. We're looking at restructuring governments, uh, new forms, etc. What he's trying to do is just push the tree in his direction, uh, which I don't see happening. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, our computer says, no, we're not going to be going into that uh, form of totalitarianism. But uh, Schwab, look, he is a, uh, to put it mildly, he's a control freak. Uh, he's German. Well, but, I mean, besides German. that. <laughs> um, Doesn't sound Swiss. Uh, he's a Swiss German. Yeah, he's half German. Yeah, definitely. Yes. I mean, even inside his organization, you know, uh, you're not allowed to make mistakes. Uh, one mistake, and that's maybe about it. Um, but he is, what he's doing is exactly it, with his character. It's, it's a, to control everything. All right. And he he is using, uh, look, he's, he's done a, a fantastic job of, of getting his foot in the door. Um, is is there a possibility that like Klaus is also? I mean, he's obviously a technocrat. Um, but is there a chance that maybe he sees this great sort of like, um, and you know, just to give him the benefit of the doubt, like, is there a situation where he sees all this unraveling and he realizes that actually the people need something to believe in, and I'm going to give them this thing to believe in, and if we can get them to believe in it, then at least maybe we can, unlike USSR, unlike the fall of Rome, at least then we can have a little less chaos in the transition and um, I can navigate, you know, I can be the great shepherd and I can navigate, you know, people through the transition. There's there's no doubt we're going to all get poorer. That could be really awful and maybe, you know, we're all going to have to live with less. But if I can find a narrative to put around it, you know, this will make it less damaging. Is there a chance that it's a kind of benevolent, you know, shepherding us. I'm sure the- he sees himself as benevolent. Um, and, and and so did Hitler, I think. I was about, I was about to say that. Damn it. Took my joke. Um, <laughs> you know, but he doesn't understand um, why communism even fell. Um, I mean, I went behind the Berlin Wall before it fell Uh I, I've you know been all over the place, um, and I would say that the biggest thing that was very disturbing there that brought everything down is that they they turned everybody against everybody else. Um, I had a friend yes. who grew up there, and in East Germany, and when the wall fell, his father went and got his Stasi file, 
and he saw all his friends were ratting on him, basically. He came home and started punching holes in the walls and pulling out microphones. Uh, it, it's, um, and after that, it was never the same. He would never speak to anybody but family. Uh, but, I mean, this is, you know, our cancel culture reminded me of, of exactly what took place behind the Berlin Wall that I saw myself. You know, you can't speak freely. Um, I mean, a, a friend of mine's, you know, <clears throat> I went there with a friend and because the day the wall was went up, he happened to be walking on the right side of the street as a little kid with his grandmother. So he became an American and the rest of his family was trapped. So he wanted to go back, but he wanted to go with a real American because he heard that if they he was born there, that maybe he might be kidnapped or something. And I said, fine, I, let's go. I want to see what this is really about. And it was it was very enlightening. His cousin, she took us around. And if anybody was remotely near us, uh, she would say, oh, this is the government. It takes such wonderful care of us, etc." And as soon as everybody was was gone, oh, the no good. Then she called them every name in the book, you know. Um, Wow. That's the way it was. I mean, it's it's um, and I feel that that is has been part of this cancel culture that we see in the West. You can't say anything, uh, you know, oh, well, that, COVID, all, all this this nonsense. There do, there do seem to be echoes. But um, one other like thing that I wanted to ask you, because obviously he he's he founded the World Economic Forum, I think around. 1971 but you you also you have the world economic conference right so yes. that's that's often that's another kind of like similarity between you um and when when was your first world economic conference the wet well let me explain what klaus claims 1971 all right yeah um his first world economic forum was only 1987 Right. Before then, he would have these small conferences around with 25 people. That's what we did, too. All right. I would mm -hmm. run around. I would do a, a session in Toronto, then Frankfurt and Munich and different places. And our clients are the ones that started this. They, I was doing one actually in Zurich, and there were people from Canada that flew in for it. And they said, you know, look, why don't you have one big one? We can all come together. I said, you know, maybe that's a good idea. So 1985 was our first. And it was very good because you could actually see the capital flow moving in the in the room. Um, <laughs> I mean, you like know. Like a microcosm. I mean, yeah, a guy from Saudi Arabia standing up saying he wanted to invest in Canada. The Canadian says, what? why you want to invest in Canada? We got nothing. And he goes, you got all the water. <laughs> I mean, it was just very interesting. Um, the Canadians want to invest in Saudi Arabia. National audience. Because they have all the sand. Um, yeah. And so Klaus took that and created his World Economic mm -hmm. Forum and it started two years after ours. Um, so, so Martin, are you really like the guy behind all the stuff that's happening in the world then? And Klaus is just a... Smoke and mirrors. No, I mean, he's just—he's. We have two different approaches. Um, <laughs> Are you Michael less controlling? Is... Came and spoke at our 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 conference in 2019 in Rome. Who was it? And 
and they asked Nigel, uh, it was Nigel Farage, and they asked him, gee, why did you, how come you're here? And he said, of course I'm here. He says, Morty's the alternative to Davos. Um, you are, you're, you're the anti-Davos. Pretty much. You're like, yeah. you do this you're in, like a mirror. You do this, is this in Orlando? Uh, no, that one we did in, in uh, Rome. Um, we hold them in Orlando um, since COVID. And we, you know, uh, big problem there. But Orlando is generally a, a very good city. I mean, you, you could get a, a direct flight to Moscow from there. Or at least you used to be able to. <laughs> Uh, everybody wants to see Mickey Mouse, you know. So, so it's, a, um, it's a great hub. Um, so yes. I think Orlando as a challenger to Davos is quite a good option, and also Florida is sort of gearing up to be this new financial center anyway. From what I hear, yeah, lots but, of people moving no down there. No skiing. Oh, pretty We've much. Got water uh, skiing. Look, I mean, I have a very a friend who was one of the top guys at uh, J.P. Morgan, and. He called me up. He says, hey, I'm down here. Let's, let's go to dinner. I, I said, okay, fine. I said, oh, how long you in town for? Oh, no, I moved here. I said, you moved? Well, we all work virtually now. I said, oh, okay. Um, I mean, Goldman Sachs moved its, its top uh, economic you know, profit center to, to Florida. I mean, yeah, West Palm oh, Beach. Yeah, I mean, everybody's moving here. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's it's a story I want to do because it's definitely a thing. Um, but like, it's just go so, to your side. Stay on the East Coast, please. <laughs> I'll stay here. I'll stay here. Mark, you should come over here, though. You know, we could do dinner. Uh, I'll help you organize uh, Davos. What, what are? I mean, what we are your be, thoughts about? Me and Isabella can be in the triumvirate, and when everything collapses in 2032, we will help you rearrange the world. We're really good at that. We have some great ideas. All right, I'm, I'm waiting for Scotty to beam me up. I don't want to get out of this place. But t what what are your because Joseph's a big fan of Bitcoin, so I'm just curious uh, what your current view is on Bitcoin. Because I love what what I do love about your takes is that you're very agnostic and you're not very like you're very pragmatic rather. Like you, you your philosophy is very much there's a time and place for everything. Time for gold. There's not a time for gold. There's, you know, you're very pragmatic. You're not like a, a zealot on X, Y, or Z. Um, so what's your view at the moment on, on Bitcoin? Um, in, in all honesty, and I know a lot of people in the Bitcoin don't want to hear it, but I believe it was created by the CIA. Um, it's fine. You know, I think that um, I just know these people. This is what they do. I mean, you know, you, you create blockchain and it is the perfect thing. If I give you a hundred dollar bill, they don't know where I got it from. Okay. But if I give you a hundred in Bitcoin, they know every the 10 last 10 people that I got it from. Um, they can trace everything. And I know these people, they think that they, um, they look at us as the enemy. They really do. Uh, they don't look at us. I mean, these people that think that, you know, politicians really care. They don't. Um, I mean, I can run for office and say, vote for me. I'll save the whales. I believe in women's rights, trans rights, whatever you want to hear to win. Then I get to, to Washington and the way it works, there's a mo there's a, a meeting of anybody that knew that came in and say, okay, fine. This is how it goes. We will tell you what to vote. We don't care what you ran for. That's very nice. 
And if you just look at the votes in Congress, they're down party line. So I could say I've, I've, I stand for whatever you want to hear to get elected. I, I actually heard Matt Gates describe this. I heard Matt Gates describe this. He said that they got into Washington, D.C. as a freshman. And then on night one, uh, they say, OK, we're all going to go to a bar and uh, hang out. You're going to you're going to be introduced to some people and they go there and the bar is filled with the lobbyists that are in their particular mm -hmm. uh, for, there for their particular uh, set of competencies and assignments, committee assignments. And he said it was like night one, day one. That was the first thing that they did. And that, that really astounded me. I didn't realize the level of uh, collusion and control that was there until I heard that. Oh, it's 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 beyond even that. I mean, I'm oh, sure I've, I've watched through... I watched that uh, TV show from Netflix. What's that called? With the Which with one? the famous guy with the the child. Uh, oh, um, yeah, I forget House of Cards or something. That one, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, that's, that's not fucker. that's not a documentary. Actually, the original was British. It was a British uh, series to begin with. Yeah, and we, I always think improve, House... we always improve them. It's yeah. not relevant. The House of, House of Commons was pretty pretty scummy. Uh, I mean, you, yeah, they the all UK... are. This is, this is just the way, the way it happens. All right. And uh, look, I've been to dinners in Washington. You cannot buy <laughs> a, a politician dinner. Unethical. So what did they do? Um I've gone to like the IMF dinner. Every politician in town is there. You can have filet mignons, lobster tails, whatever you want. It's all there. As long as you stand, it's considered an hors d'oeuvre. So it's okay. If really? Hors d'oeuvres are allowed. Yeah. yeah. Hors d'oeuvres are allowed for not dinner. I mean, interestingly, um, because the IMF uh, spring meetings are happening at the moment, and um, today it true? was announced. Yes, they are happening at the moment. And no, no, Washington... not that the, the the standing thing. I'm just like I'm oh, astounded. Yeah. Absolutely. As long as you stand, I mean, look, I was holding my plate, and Paul Volcker, um, <clears throat> I was holding the plate for Paul Volcker so he could cut his steak. And he held my plate. I said, this is completely nuts. He goes, yeah, I know. It's like the Eucharist. Like it, it's all it's, about your disposition, you know? It's completely insane. I mean, this <laughs> is just the way it really is. Um, so you're just doing well, lunch wrong. You should have just, you should have just gone to dinner and then you, you could have stood. Yeah. As clearly. long as you stand, it's, it's not considered dinner. And um, look, I've been in meetings on Capitol Hill and I swear that it must have cost the government a hundred thousand dollars in ethics to figure out because we were going to be working late. And uh, I ended up, I had to order a pizza from one place. I couldn't share it with anybody else. They ordered pizza from a completely different place. So we could all sit down and have pizza. I mean, it's, yeah, it's sounds, just, that sounds like bureaucracy gone mad. Um, it is. And the whole thing is completely insane. Um, I was the one going back and forth between Dick Army and Bill Archer over the tax reform. Bill Archer mm -hmm. was uh, for uh, retail sales tax and Dick Army was for the flat tax. And both of them are Republicans and both of them were from, um, uh, you know, Texas. So what happened, 
I couldn't get the two of them to sit down for dinner. I said, come on, why can't the three of us sit down and work this out? Oh, if I've seen having dinner with him, they'll think we're compromising. So I'm the one going back and forth between them. And I was finally sitting in Dick Army's uh, office. And he said, Marty, look, you know cycles. I said, yeah, okay. He says, I can't agree to this unless we could possibly repeal the income tax, um, which I don't think we can do. And he said, otherwise, we do the retail sales tax. When the Democrats come back in on the next cycle, we'll have both. And I, I looked at him. I said, you know, Dick, you're absolutely right. And I quit. I said, that was it. This is all just one giant waste of time. Um, and you know, it, it, but that's the way it is in Washington. It, it's you just would not believe it. Um, I mean, I got called in back in 1985 when you were born <laughs> um, for the they were creating the G5. And there were 35 of us, you know, okay, fine. I thought, well, I guess I, I made it, you know, because um, I was in, the, you know, one of the top guys in foreign exchange. I get there and it's, it's like, oh, how do we save the world? Oh, so sorry. Your, your 10 minutes is up next, you know, and then they stand <laughs> up and they basically say what their conclusion is. I got... I said, this is nuts. This has got nothing to do with anybody testifying. And I wrote a, a letter to Reagan. I said, thanks a lot for the invitation, but you do this and this is going to be, you know, you're going to create a crash in, in two years, which ended up being the 87 crash. Uh, and, you know, guys said, oh, you'll never be called. You went out of committee. I said, I don't care. This is a joke. Then the 87 crash comes. Then... They tried to get me back in for that. And I said, no, thanks. So they started lobbying my friends. And I think it was Jack mm -hmm. Schweiger who, who said, Marty, if you don't do this, they're going to come take our computers away. Um, so it is, but that's the way it is. I mean, and they bring in academics who never traded anything in their life. Don't know anything about anything really. Uh, mm. And, um, I mean, my biggest accomplishment on the 87 and the Brady Commission, getting called into that, was I got them not to attack the market. That was it. And at the end of the Brady Commission report, I explained to them, I said, look, G, you know, G5 starts in 1985. You stand up and you say you want the dollar down by 40%. And that's when I, I wrote to Reagan. I said, you're going to cause a crash. They don't even understand this. Okay, and then so I got them to at least not attack the market. And if you read the Brady Commission report at the very end, it just says, well, we think foreign exchange has something to do with it. That was the best I could get. Um, they're not going to come out and blame the government. But, you know, I'm trying to explain to them: you just sold a third of the national debt to Japan. Now you stand up and you're going to say you're going to devalue, devalue it by 40 percent. Do you don't think they're going to sell? Oh, gee, why would they? I mean, these people have no concept of markets at all. Zero. Do you know Did what? You ever... I think that I think that's actually I'm quite shocked by that because I've always been a market finance person. 
but you know recently obviously i'm i'm now kind of hybriding with uh politico and i find i'm not i've never been a politics person i've, I've always tried to stay clear of it but what I find fascinating is that in that world, they really do not have any, uh, like, the, the, I was quite shocked by how little they understand finance. It's true. Yeah, they, and, they and really it was quite shocking to me. I took my, my son-in-law, said, gee, he'd like to go to see what this is. I said, fine, I'll take you to Capitol Hill with me. Um, and <clears throat> so anyhow... We go into a bunch of meetings that day. When he left, he goes, oh, my God, they don't know anything. I said, I told you. They um, really are very dumb. They have no no experience in any anything that's worthwhile. Well, um, I think, I think you Martin, know. To be, to be fair, I think that given your proximity to Dick Army, you had a giant failing. Like, you were unable to convince him to go by Richard, which I never understood. And he was an economist, so he least... yeah. You could have you could have really done like the Lord's work there, but he decided forever and ever to be known as Dick Army, which yeah, like always blew my mind. <laughs> his, yes. his, his, his parents gave him a perfectly good name, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> that is very funny. Um, I really, never really that. That's, that's why I love you, Josh. I you bring up these very obvious points. But look, I think, Martin, like, you're obviously, like, and I mean this in, in, in a complimentary way, yeah, you're obviously a, a geek, like a history geek, a markets geek. You, 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 you know, I, the amount of information you process in your head and, and kind of like, I, I don't know where you find the time, frankly. And, um, and that is what's lacking, I think, in the political circle. I think that there is so much dependence on advisors and, the, the knowledge is distributed. It's not like it's not absorbed by a single brain, right? It's kind of like everyone's dependent on all this army of advisors, right? So there isn't really a single point of analysis. And, and that's where the blind spots, I guess, emerge. Um, but what like you mentioned Bitcoin, obviously, that you thought it was a bit of a bait and switch and that or dragnet, even like to lure people. Do you think there's maybe a sort of um well in if your forecast comes true like is there a role for bitcoin just as a clearing um unit where it doesn't really matter about the privacy because if it just becomes the balancing tool between different systems then does it really matter i mean it's only it's only really uh settling very large trades in which case if they're cross you know if they're sort of institutional or sovereign trades to some degree it doesn't really matter as long as the kind of systems that hang on to it and are being balanced for it remain competitively you know some might be private some might not be private that's where the the kind of competition for values might emerge is there a role for bitcoin as that sort of central clearing mechanism I think it all depends. I mean, you have the IMF uh, in their meetings right now. I mean, proposing to, you know, their digital currency uh, for to replace the dollar. But the IMF wants to do their own one. Yes, exactly. Oh my um, god, I missed that. But you know, it's, it's it's for international um, clearing. They effectively want to get rid of. Uh, the U.S. dollar. 
Um, yeah, but, but but all of that all of that's kind of stupid. Like they're like the IMF is just going to be able to do a basket, right? That's essentially what they'll default to, right? Perhaps. I mean, that's what the SDR was initially, but um, but, but that's all they know how to do. I mean, like like the way I see it, and not to defend Bitcoin too much, just kind of in general, currency is exists as a means of like measuring the output of an entire globe. That's why we have it. It kind of expands to the the bucket, to the size of the fishbowl, if you will. And uh, and to me, like I look at something like Bitcoin, it's just a ledger system. That's all it is. It does nothing else. You're not exposed to any of the risk of like gold, which has the risk of like certain industrial properties. All it is is a ledger. And it seems like we've never had anything like that. And that that's kind of my simple pitch for why Bitcoin uh, takes over that function. It, it's just it's I just wish it didn't ledger. have such a stupid name. <laughs> it does have a stupid it, name. Change it. Is it? We'll call it Isabella Coin. No, that's even um, more stupid. <laughs> that's a great name. I'm gonna call it Isabella Coin from now on. No, I think it's it's um, is a coin. A medium of exchange is is whatever the people agree upon. Um, yeah. Trying to use seashells for a while, you know, uh, cattle was. Um, you look at. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton knows about that. Was if you read, um, um, you know, St. Patrick, you know, he talks about, you know, snakes, the, he's exchanging snakes. Yeah. No, it was slave oh. girls. No, oh. <laughs> um, he says, I think I've spent the, the equivalent of five or six uh, humans so far. Yeah. Um, well, secrets. secrets Isabella is going to pay your invoice, change. Martin. Don't worry. She's got, uh, she's got a few slave girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's nice. It, it it is there's a difference between the medium of exchange and and the unit of account yeah sure. so sure. obviously you you know the slave girl was the unit of account but you didn't walk around going shopping with them you know and say okay fine here's you know it's everything else was then related to what its value would be uh if you look at the uh, earliest bronze uh, ingots that uh, that was emerged as money in in the Bronze Age, they were in the shape of a sheepskin because sheepskins were the unit of account before. Um, so I mean, it's it, it's always this. It's, it's a know, cultural thing as much as a um, a value thing. Like it's effectively a common denominator between lots of different people and. It's hard to predict in some ways. Um, no, yes, I totally I, hear you. I don't, I don't think uh, any electronic currency will be um, the beginning and the end all. Because, I mean, we, there's going to be plenty of places and, and people that aren't on the grid. You know, how do you, yes. you know, um, conduct any sort of a business? There's, there's always going to be some sort of black market, you know, um thing no matter what you you know country you look at i mean the, answer, the answer is very simple you might be surprised you can print bitcoins out so like you can literally put bitcoin on paper no i understand but you know you then also have to have somebody who's willing to accept that oh yeah, yeah. um i'll take it and and the the if you look at Money from that standpoint, going back to the beginning, it had a unitary value. It was usually food or something along those 
those lines. Um, something that could be used. Bronze, you could use it for a, a weapon or for a tool. It had a use to it. Um, Is, isn't gold, that bad, though? Isn't that bad for money? Like, don't you want money to have no exposure to the risk of a utility? Well, money has not had any utility ever since then, really. But but, but I, um, I know, and, and I would say that that, like, to me, that might be a good thing. That might be. Maybe it's not. Uh, maybe the problem with the way that we're doing it is that there is sort of a central bank aspect where humans can mess up. But to me, I would think that you would want monetary energy to be singular and not exposed to things like demand for gold in India uh, because it's the wedding season. Well, yeah, look, I mean, you have a, a global economy, which, uh, as we were talking about before, the, the, the sanctions on Russia were very, very detrimental to the global economy as a whole. Uh, once you did that, you divided everything in half. Um, and so we no longer have a global economy. Uh, and yep. and Bitcoin was was very big in China. They were using it to get the money out of China. <laughs> um, and then until the Chinese figured out what was going on. Uh, so, I mean, in that sense, it, Bitcoin was a, a black market medium in, in China. That but you see, that's where I think maybe that's where I think it might have wrong, because I've always been a as Josh will testify, I've always been a, a huge skeptic of, of crypto. But I think where I've come come on board a little bit is like if we are moving to this like big standoff between different systems that are effectively like there's an iron curtain between them all, then the leakage will have to go into some sort of black market, which will become the true price discovery mechanism between these more static systems that are very centralized and authoritarian right so in that sense if if the kind of if if you think of it in star wars terms if that's like the currency of the cantina um then then that could yeah that could work <laughs> um and, and also and also Martin, the great depression yeah um there was a shortage of money because they mm -hmm. were afraid um the view was that you had to make sure that their confidence in the dollar was strong so that we wouldn't default. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, that's what Milton Friedman was critical about, that they didn't increase the supply of money when during the Depression. So um, what you had was effectively uh, over 200 cities in the United States issued their own currency. Yeah. Now it, it was good enough, you know. Okay, fine. Um, I would accept it because the next guy in the same town is going to accept it. Um, you know, there there are coins from the Civil War issued privately um, mm -hmm. with the guy's name on it. I mean, you see the same thing in many uh, in many cases. Uh, the Roman Emperor Tiberius was ver was very frugal. You see. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you see a whole bunch of uh, private tokens being issued during his reign because um, yep. there was a shortage of money. Uh, so, you know, people do tend to go, you know, I guess you could call it a form of barter or whatever. But if the countries are going to break up, you're probably going to see each little region creating its own currency at that point.
I mean, that's what usually happens historically. I think that makes sense. And and that would be, yeah, that makes perfect. Actually, I think in the kind of decentralized fragmentation, that would that would naturally complement the lower mobility of people because people wouldn't be able to travel as, as far and wide as they had And they'll be able to do that bit. using Fediment on Bitcoin, so... <laughs> um, um martin i think i think we do we have to wrap up here isabella yes i was gonna say because it's it's london is is late now but martin, i've can, we've only just started really picking your brains and it was very I kind agree. of you to come and pop on um i'd love can, you know for the on. next time you come on martin because there, there will be a next time obviously this is your favorite I podcast <laughs> um as i can i can see it in his brain he's like this is my favorite podcast so martin <laughs> uh, can you give me like five or six books to read before the next time we have you on should read his books. Um, well, I'll read his books, but I already know about those. So, like, I'll read his books, but like, he's he's a geek in a way that I'm not a geek, and I'd like to become a geek like he is. So, I'd like to read books that he likes. I would he say like read books. Herbert Hoover's memoirs. Okay, yeah. Herbert Hoover's memoirs, particularly, oh, particularly 1931. Herbert um, Hoover's memoirs. That really kind of uh, blew my mind, and it set me on a interesting course that realizing that everything they were teaching me in school was wrong <laughs> all right what else i want to learn about the celtic slave trade uh, <laughs> well that would be you know read saint patrick um uh, i don't know i mean there's so many different things i mean i i can't even tell you how many books i have probably thousands but um um maybe even more than that i mean i've i've you know the, the the I would say one of the economists that first started even talking about business cycles was Jevons. Um, um, Jevons. Yeah, J E V O N S. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different things that are are, are I think relevant. I mean, but. What's happening right now is we're looking at not just the collapse of the monetary system per se. We're, it's, we're looking at the collapse of, of economic theory. Keynesianism is, is, is what is un, you know, basically proven to be completely wrong. Um, is, is it going to give way to monetarism then? Or what, what, what is the replacement theory? No, I mean, both of them are tied to government controlling uh, the supply. And um, this is the whole problem. I mean, if you look up when, when did Powell raise interest rates? He yeah. raised it within two May weeks 20. of the Ukraine war starting. He knows, like every other central banker, war is inflationary. You can talk about all oh, CPI and job growth, whatever, and people will say, oh, he's going to lower rates because the number's better this week. Complete nonsense. He knew right away where we're going and what's going on. And he raised, it started is, raising it rates. It is quite right mental that he did that two months after like the Ukraine war. I hadn't really appreciated how crazy that is in retrospect. It is kind of mad. Yeah. Um, well, listen, I talk to central bankers. I know exactly what the problems is, or, but before, before we pop off, I just wanted to like, um, 
you know, do you think you've been purposefully smeared in the press? And and like, do you, do you feel that, because I get the impression, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that like, you're the sort of person that a lot of people, especially in the mainstream, were kind of like secretly, and I've, I, you know, they'll go, you know, do you know Martin Armstrong? And people go, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I kind of read him. I really appreciate it. He's like, you're like a guilty ple pleasure for a lot of mainstream people, but they, they're not very upfront about it. And um, and I just wonder like how you feel about, because you, you did get a lot of press coverage early on and I, I you still do, but in more a fringy way. I was just wondering what your view is of how you've been treated by the press. Um, I, I would say initially it was um, a lot of the people in the press just mimic whatever the government says. Um, there was, <clears throat> they actually had put in um, to prison the executive vice president of the New York Post, I think it was. And when he came in and um, he explained to me, first he came in and he kind of joked. He says, gee, I just wanted to thank you. Every time we put you on the front page of the New York Post, or we'd always sell an extra few hundred thousand copies. You know, and I said, I'm glad, glad to, to have helped you, you know. Uh, and then he explained uh, early on, um, there was uh, an article that came out in the Associated Press. Uh, the judge had put a note on the door, courtroom closed, which is completely illegal. We're supposed to have public trials. But uh, this one journalist from the, from the Associated Press, either she was in there before he put the note on or she walked past it. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but when I got there, he ordered the marshal to, to go see who, everybody who was in, in the room. And when he discovered she was from the Associated Press, he ordered her out. She had the guts. She walked right up to the, the bench and she said, we're the Associated Press. You can't throw us out. He pointed to the room, told the marshal, marshal you know, take her by the arm. You get out of here. So she actually wrote a, an article, which you'll find, I think, on our site. Um, April 27, 2000 was the date. Um, we question whether or not Armstrong is going to get a fair trial. From the Associated Press, that was amazing. All right. right. Uh, and this guy from the New York Post, he came in and he said, when they threw out the press, we knew something was wrong. <clears throat> um, but, you know, then, honestly, after that, you end up with people just... Uh, you know, the, the Bloomberg wanted to come in and I, I knew they had done interviews on us and uh, Mark Pittman knew exactly what took place. Um, and we were not managing their money in Japan. We bought their portfolios. It was exactly opposite of what the government said. And um, Mark... <clears throat> He even said to me, he says, Marty, we're not going to let them do this to you. Bloomberg took him off the case, put on uh, this guy, David Glover, who basically wrote whatever the government said. That was it. Um, and actually, the guy that was doing the interview um, of Glover for the movie, um, 
Glovin, he got Glovin to admit that, uh, you know, he was being told from above. And then he said, please don't show that. And he says, I'll lose my job. Uh, this is the way the press is in New York. They just put out whatever the government tells them to do. Um, it's funny, though. I mean, because we do, we really do have to wrap up. But um, it is funny because I think even three years ago, hearing that story, people wouldn't have understood that. I think now we're a bit wiser to how how the kind of peer pressure works and how how the press self-censor as well when there's fear of stigma. So um, it's been really fascinating talking to you and I hope we can do it again, um, if not just to see you stand off with uh, Joseph about Bitcoin. That was fun. But um, thank you for your time and and he'll do the reading, I guess, by the next time we speak to you. Okay, very good. You got some homework for you. I'll read everything, Martin. I'm very fast. Very good. I can, I can read on 2x speed and audible. Well, Herbert Hoover really opened my eyes. I'll read it. I'm going to do great. that. I'm going to read that too. Well, well, thank you, Martin, for joining us. Have a lovely have a lovely day and weekend in Florida. And uh, uh, we well, will. I, I will split this interview in half so that we can we can separate it for our readers so that uh, our listeners um, so that your your bit is contained in its own little area. So thank you. We'll be and to about um, eight or nine people at least. Yeah, oh. <laughs> hopefully a few more. All right. Thank you, Martin. Take care. Uh, thank you. Take care. And, Bye. And thank you, uh, audience, for watching. Uh, this was The Blind Spot. Especially we the had, five that have never yeah, switched the off. the live viewers. <laughs> this is wonderful. Thank you guys very much. Uh, tune right. in soon, hopefully next week. We're, uh, we're And tell everyone on. about this interview because I'm going to put it, I'm going to upload it now to the proper podcast and hopefully we'll Great. get some traction. <laughs> All right. All right it's kind of, it's it being quite small and sec not secretive but like you know exclusive all right take care everyone bye thank you bye